You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Beaumont, Ben, Charles, Glenn, Jim, Rachel, and Sean. And two new Commodores, Kruger and Workman. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Last time we talked about the expansion of colonial New England and the first New England pirate, Dixie Bull. Today we're continuing on in that vein, but we're going to blast past a lot of this early American history and some of the very early American pirates. See, there's a lot of pirates operating off the Atlantic coast, just as there are in the West Indies, during this first half of the 17th century. But we run into the same problems in New England that we did in the West Indies. We don't have an Alexander Exquimelin or a William Dampier that realized the value of these stories. And, you know, not the cultural value, it's not literature we're talking about, it's the monetary value, the cold hard cash that was to be earned by publishing their tales. Most of the sources we have are usually kind of dry. Council minutes and trial records. Which means that, unfortunately, many of the stories we have about those early American pirates are kind of dull. You know, they might nab a haul of fur or fish or tobacco, and that's great. I fully support them in their thievery, but it's not exciting. And these very early American pirates don't necessarily share the culture of the latter pirates, They don't have pirate codes, or even sometimes their shipboard democracy. Most of that came from Barbary and the Sally Rovers, or the Brethren of the Coast. And it's that culture, that anarchic, anti-establishment culture, that threatened to bring the great empires of the world to their knees, right? So, insofar as I am able, to get back to that era of empire-shaking piracy, I'm going to truncate this story. The bullet-point version of early American piracy. This is episode 160, Wicked and Unrighteous Practices. 
I'd like to introduce an English nobleman who really has been behind everything that we've been talking about here in New England. His name was Robert Rich, one of a very long line of barons named Robert Rich, but he was also an earl, the second Earl of Warwick. In his book The Pirate's Pact, Douglas Burgess calls the Earl of Warwick, quote, a sort of pirate broker-in-chief, end quote. And he was, but he was much more than that. Warwick was a Puritan and a parliamentarian, and at one point in his career, the Lord High Admiral. And we'll get to his piratical connections shortly, but first let's look at his colonial connections. That will help refresh us on everything we've talked about thus far. Warwick was the president of the Providence Company, the company that attempted to found a Puritan colony on Providence Island off the Mosquito Coast. And he was the president, for a time, of the New England Company. His fingers are in all of these pies here in New England and really across most of the English colonies in the world. Now, he wasn't responsible for the Plymouth Colony or the Pilgrims, but the Earl of Warwick was behind the Massachusetts Bay Colony. With, you know, there were others involved as well, but he was right at the top. Shortly thereafter, he secured patents for the Providence Plantation and the Rhode Island Colony at Newport. As well, he secured the patent for the Saybrook Colony, founded by John Winthrop the Younger. And, you know, I gave Saybrook short shrift last time, which was unfair. Were I not attempting to truncate today's episode, I would go into greater depth there. But even though it was founded as a haven for Oliver Cromwell, it proved to be a valuable fort in the conflicts to come, and helped to establish the colony of Connecticut. But Warwick was involved in everything. Maine, Connecticut, New Hampshire. But in New Hampshire, actually, he wasn't involved as a proponent. Instead, he was an opponent to the New Hampshire colony. Remember those two men who founded the province of Maine, Ferdinando Jorge and John Mason? Well, there was a legal settlement involving both of those men, as well as the Earl of Warwick and the governor of Massachusetts, that split the territory in Maine between Jorge and Mason. John Mason was allocated the land to the southwest of the split, which he would go on to name New Hampshire. It was an independent colony, not a province of Massachusetts. Now, New Hampshire's story is rife with territorial disputes. There were disputes with Massachusetts and Quebec, but more interesting to me and pertinent to our story are their disputes with New Netherland concerning the Connecticut River. Now, the Connecticut River was intended to be the border of New Hampshire, which is today their modern boundary. But Mason and the later New Hampshire colonists extended beyond that river into what was officially Dutch territory. The land into which they moved would eventually become Vermont, although that is a long time in the future. But that dispute caused some friction between the English and the Dutch. However, it was nothing compared to what was occurring down south. You'll recall that the Pico War in the 1630s left this vast stretch of land to the west of Fort Saybrook on Long Island Sound, a swath of land that had belonged to the Pico people 
but now looked very much like free real estate. However, the Pico people had been allied to the Dutch, and this stretch of land, unlike New Hampshire, was really, really close to New Amsterdam. And the English moved in and founded New Haven. This led to more than simple friction. It led to border clashes and minor conflicts that very nearly turned into open warfare. But global politics interrupted everything. See, this flurry of colonization took place in the 1620s and 1630s. But in the 1630s, the Dutch had much larger concerns than a fur trading outpost in America. There had been, by this point, about three decades of Dutch encroachment on Portuguese and Spanish territory, on their trade routes, their spice monopolies, and even their slave markets. And remember that the Dutch were still technically part of the Spanish Empire. The Dutch revolt, coinciding with the Anglo-Spanish War, had allowed them to put to sea in the first place, but all of this encroachment on Spanish interest was illegal, at least in the eyes of the Spanish. So right when the English are moving in on Dutch New Netherland, the Eighty Years' War fired up again. And, as we are all aware, that coincided with the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil Wars. And all of that very nearly halted American immigration entirely, for a generation. Oh, you're a commoner with dreams of moving to America and making good. Yeah, that's cute, but here's a pike. Go kill Catholics. There were larger concerns than colonization. Now, during this period of continental warfare, there was some action along the English and Dutch border in America, but it was really a low-level provincial struggle. But there were pirates operating out of New England here in the 1640s. The most notable was Thomas Cromwell. Now, Thomas was, as far as we know, no relation of any significance to Oliver Cromwell. He was a privateer from Boston who occasionally diverged into piracy. Cromwell received his commission from the Earl of Warwick, that pirate patron-in-chief. But it wasn't to raid the Dutch. The English and the Dutch were not yet at war. Instead, he was to raid the Spanish, and that meant sailing in the West Indies. He very likely sailed alongside other pirates like Samuel Axe. At least, the timing works out, and there were several very large raids that happened around that time. But even though he was from Boston, the piracy didn't take place in New England. However, he does hold a certain place in the New England pirate mythology. Mainly because when he returned home after his West Indian voyage was over, he brought the governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop the Elder, a very impressive gift. He brought him a sedan chair, you know, one of those litters on which obscenely wealthy people are carried around by two or four slaves. But this sedan chair was draped in silk and encrusted with gold and pearls and jewels. Now, John Winthrop was a Puritan, and a famous Puritan. He never rode in his chair that we know of. I mean, think how that would look to all of his ascetic friends and colleagues, but 
He was reportedly very fond of the chair, kept it around to look at. I presume he kept it around to, you know, remind him of the sinful opulence of all of those dirty Catholics. But even though there were some other pirates operating out of New England during this period, they were some of those that were capturing, you know, fur and fish and nothing all that exciting. The real money during this period was privateering in Europe. There were ships operating in the North Sea and the Bay of Biscay and the English Channel, even a few in the Baltic. All of those were fertile grounds for any mercenary naval outfits that were looking to make a quick buck. And some of those privateers, especially the French among them, would go on to be among the first buccaneers. But there were others who had fewer scruples operating around this time that earned their bones down to the south. This was one of the heydays of the Barbary pirates. Barbary piracy is something of a perennial phenomenon. It pops up every few generations. In fact, I'm listening to Edward Gibbon's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and while he does his circuit geographically around the empire, Once he gets to North Africa, he focuses on the Barbary pirates that people in his day faced, the same Barbary pirates that Thomas Jefferson would have to deal with. But here in the 1600s, we're talking about the, really the second wave of the Sali rovers out of Morocco. In some ways, those Sali rovers are really the ideological precursors to the Golden Age pirates more so in some ways than even the privateers. But they were less democratic rebels and more anarchic outlaws. They didn't care for race or religion or creed or nationality. They were bereft of any kind of loyalty whatsoever. They flouted international laws and norms and attacked anyone with a hall worth taking. And that nihilism, when blended with the ideals of the Brethren of the Coast, will go on to create the pirates that we think of when we talk about pirates. So that's all terribly exciting. But back in New England, there wasn't a whole lot happening. There were some interesting colonial developments, but as far as piracy is concerned, things were pretty slow. But then... The Thirty Years' War ended, and everything changed immediately. The settlement between Spain and the Netherlands allowed the Dutch unfettered trade worldwide, even in ports that belonged to Spain. And as I said, they had been building the infrastructure for thirty years that, once they were allowed to trade legally anywhere they cared to, they were immediately miles ahead of everyone else. I mean, even Spain and Portugal, who had the greatest empires the world had ever known, even they lagged behind the Dutch. England, despite all of her amazing fleets, was way in back. And France was... Well, I don't know what France was doing at this point in terms of maritime trade. I think they were busy, you know, developing dressage. But Cromwell and the English Commonwealth weren't about to take this state of affairs lying down. Now, there are some personal and political tensions between Cromwell and William of Orange, William II, Prince of Orange, 
that are often highlighted, but really, if we're being honest, war is always about money and resources. And you know, sure, there are theological questions at the center of all of these conflicts, but really, it was about who controlled the wealth. So, Cromwell promulgated the very first official Navigation Act. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. This Navigation Act was a singularly mercantilist approach to colonial trade. It forbade any Englishman, in the colonies or at home, from trading with foreign merchants, except in a very few key exceptions. It was intended to bolster the English East India Company and the Levant Company and the New England Company, but of course that's not how the real world works. That's not how markets work. In reality... The Navigation Act left the English in the colonies with three potential options. First, they could obey the law and go broke, because the English just weren't equipped to compete with the Dutch in trade, at least not at this point. Second, they could ignore the act, which is what most of them did. Nearly everyone was taking part in a bit of smuggling or black market trade. Or three, they could obey the law and succeed by engaging in warfare, privateering, and piracy. This was an option that, at the very beginning, only a very few chose. But, as I think Cromwell probably intended, as time went on, more and more chose that third option. See, as far as what he was going to personally invest his money and time in... Cromwell had more of a stake in his western design. That's his West Indian adventure. You know, Jamaica and the Morgan family, we know that story. Whether he intended it or not, the Navigation Acts led to... Well, I don't want to get too bogged down in colonial history. Actually, you know, I do. 
I could go on about it for hours, but I'm not going to. And I also don't want to spend a lot of time on the First Anglo-Dutch War. We've talked about that before, and really, New England is only a sideshow of that war. But I will say that New Netherland, in the wake of the Navigation Act, was a particular threat to New England, and not because it was cutting the English out of trade. It was quite the opposite, in fact. New Netherland had a free market, very capitalist approach to trade. See, it was a Dutch colony, but it also wasn't. New Netherland was property of the Dutch West India Company, and as such it was home to a large, multinational coalition of merchants. Now, there were mostly Dutch, but there were also Danish and Norwegian and Swedish and German. No Frenchmen, though, and certainly no Spaniards. No Catholics allowed. And, due to the proximity of New Netherland and New England, there were a lot of English people, more than anyone else besides the Dutch. Largely because in the Dutch colony, they were allowed to do business that, due to the Navigation Act, they normally would not be. One of these Englishmen, a New Englander who transferred over to New Netherland, was a man named John Underhill. Now, he was born in England, but as a boy, his family fled to the Netherlands. His father got caught up in a coup d'etat against the Queen. And in the Netherlands, he joined the Prince of Orange's army. The Dutch trained John Underhill as a soldier, and he wound up marrying a Dutch woman. Now, due to all of that, you might consider John Underhill a loyal Dutchman. But he wasn't. He lived in a community of Puritan exiles in Amsterdam. That community in Amsterdam was the same that gave refuge to the pilgrims several years earlier. In fact, John Underhill personally knew a bunch of the Mayflower pilgrims. And that may have informed his decision, or maybe even opened the door, for his immigration to Boston. Although, it had just as much to do with the Earl of Warwick hiring him as the commander of their militia. John Underhill has been maybe not as prominent as the Earl of Warwick, but nearly as ubiquitous in this story. It's really a crime we haven't mentioned him yet. Underhill outfitted and trained the Boston militia. He oversaw the construction of their fort on Castle Island. He served under John Winthrop the Younger and led the construction of the fort at Saybrook. And then, when the Pico War broke out, John Underhill led the forces of New England. He literally wrote the book on the Pico War. It was a contemporary account of his own experience. It's not exactly... Caesar's War Diaries, but it's a must-read for any colonial history aficionados. However, his next work, News from America, was even more important. It's one of the most important books in existence for those who study colonial history. And, I mean, do you remember Roger Williams, that abolitionist, freedom-of-religion-loving, separation-of-church-and-state-arguing radical that founded the Providence Plantations? it was John Underhill that was ordered to arrest him. However, Underhill grew dissatisfied with Boston and John Winthrop the Elder and all of those Puritan purity tests. So he left his home in Massachusetts. For a time, John Underhill moved to New Hampshire, 
and then moved on to New Haven, but finally settled down in New Netherland. He led the Dutch militia there and led yet another war against the neighboring Indian peoples. But then John Underhill was appointed by the governor of New Netherland, Pieter Stuyvesant, to a post leading the militia in Flushing. But Stuyvesant turned out to be a difficult master to serve. John Underhill was even less satisfied there than he had been in Boston. John Underhill declared, quote, We wish to stay at the inn. Our business is our own. Yeah, that's just a bit of Lord of the Rings humor for you. What he really said, on behalf of all of the non-Dutch Europeans and the Quakers living in New Netherland, was, quote, We declare that it is right and proper to defend ourselves and our rights, which belong to a free people. And he continued, quote, This great autocracy and tyranny is too grievous for any brave Englishman and good Christian any longer to tolerate. Accept and submit ye, then, to the Parliament of England. End quote. John Underhill collected a commission from the Providence Council and led a small fleet against New Amsterdam. His old boss, though, Stuyvesant, was prepared for him. He ordered a wall constructed all the way across Manhattan Island, the current location of Wall Street. And he manned that wall with cannons and muskets and lots of men, so many that John Underhill was unable to attack New Amsterdam proper. Instead, he attacked a nearby settlement, took his winnings, and went home. Now, this act of aggression was done on behalf of the Rhode Island Council, but Stuyvesant went above their head and brought a suit against Underhill with the Council of New England. Stuyvesant, surprisingly, really, won that suit. The action was deemed an act of piracy against the Dutch. However, John Underhill got immensely lucky here. Before a sentence could even be passed, the First Anglo-Dutch War broke out. Now, John Underhill wasn't responsible for the First Anglo-Dutch War, just as Francis Drake wasn't responsible for the Anglo-Spanish War, but both of them played a role in the tensions between England and her enemies. The First Anglo-Dutch War, though, was an incredibly stupid war, but an interesting war, especially in the field of maritime warfare. These were two of the world's largest navies duking it out on every front possible. But it's of interest to us today because of the many New England privateers that rose to prominence during the war. It was during this conflict that the Earl of Warwick really earned his reputation as a pirate broker-in-chief. Now, there aren't any famous names to throw around here. Not that we'd be interested in here. Sure, there were earls and dukes and lord admirals performing great deeds of valor on the sea, but as far as pirates are concerned, pirates whose names we might already know, there aren't any. Lolo Ney and Roque Basiliano, Pierre Le Picard, they would all earn their bones in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Even Morgan probably had no role in this conflict. But, considering how little we know about the early lives of so many of the pirates, some of them could have served as privateers in this conflict. Not captains, not masters of their own ships, but crewmen, working for others, and privateers were notoriously poor at keeping a crew manifest. When 
John Coxon and Peter Harris and William Dampier were engaged on the Pacific adventure, some of the old sea dogs involved there may have begun their careers in this conflict. And since, after the Thirty Years' War ended, so many navies sailed down to the Mediterranean to deal with the Barbary problem, some of the privateers involved in this conflict may have been themselves former Barbary pirates. As I said, we don't know any of their names. It's, it's all speculation, but it's fun speculation. Even for the privateers active off the coast of New England, it's a scarce history. Any privateer actions usually had to be contested in a court of law to pop up on the historical radar. But that's actually helpful for us. It helps us sift through the privateer actions and find the real piracy. For example, the case of Captain Kempo Sebata versus John Hull, Robert Hull, and Edward Hull, pirate. Before we get to that case, though, let's talk for a moment about silver. The common currency in English America was, well, tobacco, really, but when we're talking about coinage, it was the Spanish piece of eight. Now, let's say, hypothetically, for the sake of argument, understand, that your colony had a noble patron. Let's throw a name out there, just a random example of a potential noble patron, say, the Earl of Warwick. Now, let's assume that that random noble patron happened to be an ardent anti-Spanish Puritan, an ardent anti-Spanish Puritan that handed out letters of mark like candy. Were that the case, hypothetically, it's entirely possible that your colony hundreds of leagues away from any Spanish settlement, would be awash in Spanish silver. Much more Spanish silver than any English colony could have acquired through legal means. Enough that it would look suspicious, should any authority figure poke their nose in. Now, I'm not saying any of this is the case. I don't want to sully anybody's memory. But, were you in that hypothetical situation... What would you do with all that Spanish silver? Well, I'm sure it's strictly coincidental that in 1652, the Massachusetts Bay Colony established a mint at Boston. A silver mint in Massachusetts. Coining, we can only assume, that wealth of silver from the famed New England silver mines. And just in case my extremely sarcastic tone isn't making it clear, and you're not a historical geologist, there are no silver mines in Massachusetts. In New England in general, there are none. However, that absolutely necessary mint was overseen by a mint master named John Hull. Mark G. Hanna writes in his book Pirate Nests and the Rise of the British Empire, quote, the role of silversmith in early America, as in medieval Europe, was complex, combining artisanship with the roles of banker, lender, hoarder, and smuggler. In the colonies, silversmiths were highly respected and powerful men. End quote. But regardless of their location, silversmiths, much like millers traditionally, or used car salesmen, they were never quite trusted. Partly that was jealousy. 
partly it was a legitimate concern that those silversmiths just might be debasing the silver itself for their own personal gain. But John Hall was not taking part in any of that activity. He made excellent silver. Well, let me walk that back a bit. He did not make excellent silver. What he did, and what he was very good at, was taking Spanish silver, coined in Mexico or Peru, melt it down, and imprint his own stamp on it. John Hall created what's called the pine tree shilling. Due to the pine tree, he used as his imprint. It was the first New England coinage. And if you ever happen across a pine tree shilling on maybe a hike in Massachusetts, I want you to understand they're essentially worthless. You should just, you know, send that on to me for historical purposes. Let's not sugarcoat it here. That mint in Boston was intended strictly to launder Spanish money. Its very existence was due to the piracy, the privateering emanating from New England, and it drew in even more and more pirates seeking letters of mark. The war only heightened those issues. The deal for these privateers was simple. We give you a letter of mark. You go out hunting, and you bring us back whatever silver you find. Make sure it's a good amount, mind, or don't bother, but when you do, you get to keep whatever else was on board. It was all very profitable. The Hall family, those three brothers, are notable in all of this because they owned the mint and because of that court case. In addition to the mint they owned, John and Robert Hall also owned the bark Swallow. Their younger brother, Edward, was the captain of Swallow, and from that ship he captured a number of Dutch vessels. But it actually wasn't a haul of silver that brought him to trial. It was a more mundane prize, but the owner of that ship, Kimpo Saibata, was not a fool. He knew what was going on in Boston. He knew that the Swallow, the ship that had captured one of his, was paid for with pirated silver, with those pine tree shillings made by the very men who owned the ship that captured his goods. This entire operation was pure piracy, open and shut, plain and simple. But there is a rub. Over the last few weeks, I've been looking at the most important locations in North America in relation to piracy. Boston, New York is going to be up there shortly, Cape Cod, the Carolina Colony, the Chesapeake Bay, St. Augustine, and when we get to it, Biloxi. There are a lot of options here. And I'm not prepared to say which is, in fact, the most important, but I will tell you my favorite. Newport, Rhode Island. Edward Hall did not have a commission. He did not carry a letter of mark, but he sailed out of Newport. So Kempo Saibata brought suit against Hall in Rhode Island, which really Newport and Providence were one singular political entity at this point, Rhode Island proper. But a full month after Edward Hull had captured his prizes on board the Swallow, the Council of Rhode Island gave him a letter of mark. A letter of mark that was post-dated to include the capture of those Dutch vessels. And that's totally illegitimate, even illegal, but that didn't matter to the people of Newport. 
And, you know, they observed the proprieties. They held a trial for Edward Hall. And we actually know the names of all the magistrates and the jurors there who were upstanding members of the community. And that court, in the suit against Edward Hall and his Mintmaster brothers, who were obviously guilty, found all of them not guilty. This was the most high-profile of these sorts of cases, largely because of the prominence of the Hall family, but they were happening all the time. You know, this case created waves back in England, but it was a regular affair. And we shouldn't pretend that the Dutch didn't have pirates of their own. They absolutely did. Along with England and France, they were one of the big three pirate powers. But England, and especially New England, were just so blatant about the whole thing. It was almost a threat, you know, a dare to their enemies. What are you going to do about it? That's a state that was very profitable in money and territory, and in the end, in the war aims of England. But it couldn't last. Upon the end of the First Anglo-Dutch War, England sent overseers to Boston and to Newport to rein in their piratical depredations. This was non-negotiable. So the Council of New England promulgated a decree. It read, quote, The court, observing the wicked and unrighteous practices of evil men to increase some seizing of ships, catches, etc. with their goods, and others by rising up against their commanders, officers, and employers, seizing their vessels and goods at sea, exposing their persons to hazard, for the prevention thereof, and that due witness may be borne against such bold and notorious transgressions, this court doeth order, and be it hereby ordered and enacted, that what person or persons soever shall piratically or feloniously seize any vessel, whether in the harbor or on the seas, or shall rise up in rebellion against the master, officers, merchant, or owners of any ship, and despoil or dispossess them thereof, every such offender together with their accomplices shall be apprehended and shall be put to death. End quote. What I love about that, and something that we're going to be looking at in more depth next time, is that it wasn't really the piracy of foreign shipping that concerned the Council of New England. Sure, they had to put a stop to it, but they'd already put a stop to any privateering actions. What concerned them more than anything were those crewmen rising up against the captains and officers and merchants and owners. Now, naturally, there were conditions in this decree. For example, any person who may or may not have been involved in some of those piratical depredations were allowed to come forward whenever they entered port to rat out the rest of the crew. If they chose to do so, they would earn themselves immunity and presumably not too many questions asked about the contents of their sea chest. And some did take that option. Their fellow crewmen were arrested and put to death. And some of those who did snitch may have been kidnapped. They might have been forced to work a pirate crew against their will. And I can feel sympathy for them. They didn't want to be there in the first place. But that really didn't matter. Because the Council of Massachusetts did not have a witness protection agency. And pirates don't respect borders. 
any person who came forward to inform on their crew, should rumor of that reach the ears of pirates, did not have long to live. And that provision really did the lion's share of the work. Some pirates who didn't want to be there in the first place came forward and got their entire crew killed. Others who saw that the end was approaching for these pirates came forward and got their crew killed. The motivation doesn't really matter. The effect of this was a destruction of any trust that existed among the pirates. This small but fierce burst of post-Anglo-Dutch war piracy ended as ignominiously as it began. Next time, we're going to catch up with the French in North America. We're going to see what they've been up to this whole time and bring them and the English and the Dutch in North America to the Franco-Dutch War. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of you who have signed up to become patrons on Patreon and our many new patrons, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews or recommended this show, all of you help get the show noticed, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight